Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented at a conference entitled 450 Years Pioneering Catholic Education, Past, Present, Future. It was the 450th anniversary conference for the founding of the English College at Dowie, organized by the Center for Catholic Studies of Durham University, Ushaw College, and St. Cuthbert Society of Ushaw. The conference was held at Ushaw College in Durham from the 30th of April to the 1st of May, 2018. The following paper was presented by Professor Stephen Reagan of Durham University and is entitled The Catholic Imagination of Ushaw College Writers, Francis Thompson and Lafcadio Hearn. Good. Thank you, John. Well, is it good morning or good afternoon? It's right on 12 noon, I think, so it could be, it could be both. But thank you all for coming along to this special session. It's, it's a huge privilege to be able to talk about these two writers, Francis Thompson and Lafcadio Hearn, here at Ashore College. And I want to suggest that th this place had a really profound, formative and lasting influence on both of these writers. Uh, to talk about the Catholic imagination is to risk vagueness and generalization, perhaps. So I want to suggest right at the outset five pointers that we can think about. I always give my undergraduate students three or five pointers to hold on to at the, at the outset. Uh, I'd say, first of all, there's a deep and pervasive influence um, in Catholic liturgy, uh, prayer, music, song, both spiritually and aesthetically. And I think this might well connect with John's question. Uh, a lot of writers at the end of the 19th century used the term the beauty of holiness. And these two writers, Francis Thompson and Lafcadio Hearn, both have an acute sensitivity, I think, to the beauty of holiness, to the imagery, the rhythm uh, of prayers and hymns. So that would be my, my first point to do with the, the beauty of holiness. Second point uh, has to do with architecture. And I've been very struck looking at their work, how Gothic architecture in particular appeals to these writers and takes them right back to the Middle Ages, you know, to the, the, the early stirrings of the the Gothic, and all, all the suggestions of strangeness and mystery that accompany the Gothic. My third point has to do with the natural beauty of this part of County Durham and, and the surroundings, and I'm, I'm struck in the work of both writers, uh, particularly Thompson, who loved walking and was something of an amateur botanist, that he, 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 he just loved the countryside. But it's not... It's not separate from the spiritual calendar, and I, I was struck this morning, happy May Day, uh, by, by the way, um, that May is, is a great time of celebration. Uh, th th those words of the hymn to Our Lady, bring flowers of the fairest, just kept, you might remember that? As long as the bowers are radiant with flowers. That's poetry for many of us, that's where where poetry begins. And I think for both of them that there is this very intricate relationship between natural beauty and the spiritual calendar uh, of the year. Moving into a darker area, and this is my fourth point, and we'll see a lot of this, a deep awareness of sin, transgression, uh, fears of transgression, guilt. Uh, moving into what I would call a confessional 
mode of writing. And the best example is the Hound of Heaven, where we have a colloquy, we have a dialogue with God, which is one of the things that makes that such a, a striking poem. And then my fifth point would be uh, what I would call Catholic eschatology. And all I mean by that is a, a meditation on final things, uh, a preoccupation with the afterlife, fascination with the supernatural uh, is very strong in both of these writers. So let's start with Francis Thompson, who is here. And this is a photograph of Thompson Adachon. He was here from 1870 to 1877, probably from the age of 10 to the age of 17. We think this is probably 1875, 76, possibly when he's 15 or 16 years of age. Uh, we have some photographs. I don't know how well you can see this. This is, this is a portrait actually based on a, a photograph, I suspect, from the 1890s. And then one, one of the most famous of, of all from uh, later uh, in his life. He was only 47 when he died in uh, 1907. We have a lot of records of Thompson here at Ashore, including a, an Ashore uh, notebook, uh, fragments of his writing, several poems, which I'll mention in a minute. Uh, the records show that he excelled in English, we'd expect him to, uh, and Latin as well. But his behaviour uh, was deemed to be wayward and eccentric. Um, and this was a view clearly shared by both fellow students and his teachers. Um, one record of this, if you just want to look at the first page of your, your handout. You all have a copy of this because there, is, there are several copies here if, um, if, if anyone doesn't have one. Uh, we have from the Ashore magazine of uh, 1908, this is just a year after he died, um, some of his school friends remembering him as a frail-looking lad with high cheekbones and a nose, if anything, a trifle retrousse, a little turned up. Now, we thought of him as moony. Isn't this an interesting word? I mean, someone who gazes at the moon, I, I take that to mean, you know, tending towards the, the lunatic, perhaps. Our euphemism for abstracted. Now, that word abstracted appears in quite a few of the records uh, relating to Thompson. Um, this is lovely because it in, in, involves the architecture of the building. His mode of procedure along the ambulacrum was quite his own. He sidled along the wall, and every now and then he would hitch up the collar of his coat as though it was slipping off his none-too-thickly-covered shoulder blades. He early evinced a, a love of books, uh, fiction, but travel, uh, literature of, of war as well. So we get a little insight into... Uh, Thompson, the student there. Um, he left without taking holy orders. Um, he was deemed by his spiritual advisers to be temperamentally unsuited to the priesthood. I think that's a wonderfully euphemistic phrase. I'm often tempted to use it in references. You know, the temperamentally unsuited to the teaching profession. It covers a, <laughs> covers a, vague, of, a, a, a vague range of possibilities. However, two vice presidents of Ashore College both commented on his unsuitability uh, for the priesthood. The first is from um, Robert Tate, because he died in 1877. So we assume this must be an early um, letter in 1877 to Thompson's father. It's interesting to see he was referred to as Frank. Um, and he says uh, he had a, 
what was no doubt a frank talk with Frank, um, and he, his confessor has doubts as to his vocation. And he says, in the meantime, I hope you will not be uneasy about him. I am sure that his vocation will not be decided precipitately. A um, little later, um, in June 1877, the new president of Ashore, uh, Dr. Wilkinson, writes to refer to Thompson as a remarkably docile and obedient boy. I suppose docile could be played both, both ways, peaceful and lazy. But he does talk about his strong nervous timidity and, at the end, a natural indolence, which has always been an obstacle with him. But if he can shake off his indolence, he could turn his attention to uh, a good career. Well, um, how, how did Thompson respond? Did, did he seriously think he would uh, make it uh, as, as a priest? One of his biographers, uh, Everett Maynell, says that his failure in the seminary was with him an acute and lasting grief, that it did, it, it did affect him deeply. Even so, um, after leaving Ushaw, he managed to register as a medical student. He went to Owens College in Manchester, and it was there he became addicted uh, to opium. Um, he, he'd gone through a period of illness and started self-administering uh, laudanum. That's how the addiction started. Um, he ended up living on the streets of London, and it was uh, Alice and Wilfred Maynell, uh, well known for their work as publishers and their uh, involvement in Catholic poetry, who took him in, cared for him, and his first volume of poems in 1893 was dedicated to Alice and Wilfred Maynell, and the son, Everard, was uh, the biographer of Thompson. Well, with each of these writers, I thought we would look um, carefully at some text. It, it's meant to be a session on culture, and astonishingly, you know, you've had Cardinal Wiseman in the movies, who would have thought of it, and chocolate, and postcards, and statues of the Blessed Virgin Mary. This is going to be much more focused on poetry and the, uh, the written text. Um, I'm sorry that Stefano has gone, because I chose, specially for him, the first poem that you have, which is a lament for Stephanon. I thought if you put Stephen and Stephanon together, you know, you'd, you'd get Stephanon. Anyway, it is a lament for him, so maybe it's, it's appropriate. Um, he obviously had a sense of humour, Thompson. This is a, a mock uh, medieval uh, roundelay. Roundelay is, as the name suggests, a, a song with a refrain that you keep coming back to. And it's, it's, it's written in a light-hearted way, in a, in a, in a kind of pseudo-medieval English. I'll, I'll try reading it for you. Come listen to my roundelay, come drop the briny tear with me, for Stephanon is gone away, and long away perchance will be. Our friend, he is sick, gone to take physic, all in the infirmary. Now, Menel, the biographer, thinks that this was a reference to a master, um, who, who, who was absent. And what makes me think that he's probably right is that um, in the third stanza, he uses an image of a hawk, very prominent image, of course, in medieval um, balladry. Um, Ein, the eyes, Ein he had like to a hawk. Sooth, I say, so sharp was he 
that he, he might see you talk when you talking did not be. That makes me think it's, it's either a master or a prefect that this is uh, written about. Um, we now shall see his like again, rather cheekily borrowing from Shakespeare there. He's perhaps thinking of Hamlet uh, on his father. I shall not look upon his like again. So a very precocious talent. You know, this is a, a, a piece written when he's in his teens, with an, an, an ear attuned, um, and maybe with something of the Gothic architecture here, his imagination fastening on uh, medieval things. But it's really the Hound of Heaven uh, that I wanted to draw your attention to. Um, just there we are. This, this is in the archive here, and it, it's the cover of a programme for a performance of the Hound of Heaven that I'm trying to get more information about uh, from 1936. It's a good indication that this really is a, a, a performance piece and one of the things I'd advise you to do um, is to go onto YouTube and listen to Richard Burton. I, I love Richard Burton reading Under Milk Wood, you know, he's such a great uh, orator. He reads the Hound of Heaven and it's beautiful. He, he reads it with great pace, you know, probably too fast for some likings, but this is a poem of spiritual pursuit. We'll, we'll just turn over the page, we'll come back to the English martyrs, but if you'd like to turn to the Hound of Heaven, um, I'll just say a few words about it to begin with. I think it's one of the great English poems of spiritual yearning and pursuit. It was first published in 1893, and of course that's the decadent decade of Oscar Wilde and the so-called decadent poets and that atmosphere of sin and guilt and transgression. and So it fits very well uh, into the 1890s. Um, where it was popularised and where many people read it for the first time was in the Oxford Book of Mystical Verse. This was 1917. Now I suspect this is where Chesterton and Tolkien uh, and other um, enthusiasts of Thompson saw the poem for the first time. I'll just read 20 lines or so, if you don't mind, um, a little more slowly than Richard Burton. Just to give us a, a flavour of its, its, its rhythm, um, and this rhythm of pursuit and chase. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears I hid from him, and under, under running laughter. A vistered hopes I sped, and shot precipitated, a down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet, all things betray thee who betrayest me. That's the moment where the voice of, 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 of God calls to him and you have a spiritual colloquy, you have a, a dialogue, something he'd learned from the poet George Herbert who um, uses that, uh, that, that device. Um, it's often regarded as a strangely eccentric, uh, idiosyncratic poem and it's true that some of its vocabulary, some of its sentence structures look archaic, even by the standards of 
Victorian poetry, but we can place it, I think, within a very definite tradition of English poetry, and that is the tradition of devotional poetry, the poetry of meditation, as the critic Louis Martz would call it. And this is a poem I've hinted already that looks back to poets like George Herbert, uh, Richard Crashaw, Henry Vaughan, um, a tradition on which Jared Manley Hopkins draws, of course. Before I came here, I was lecturing to my first-year students on Jared Manley Hopkins, and it occurred to me, Thompson was leaving Ashaw the precise moment Hopkins was in St. Bino's in North Wales, writing The Wind Hover, uh, May 1877. So one of the ways, I think, in which it's both part of that tradition of devotional poetry, but it's doing something uh, radically innovative, is in its handling of rhythm, rhyme, and meter. So I've, I've just got a couple of minutes to do a, a quick course in metrical effects in poetry. The opening is iambic pentameter, so it's a, a ten-syllable line with five stresses. I fled him down the nights and down the days. However, uh, we've got that strong repetition of I fled, I fled him, I fled him, I fled him. What in literary criticism we call anaphoric repetition, repetition at the beginning uh, of the line. Then in the fourth line, we have that strong pause down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, semicolon. You know what that is? It's a caesura. It's a strong pause in the, in the middle of the line that just holds us there, suspends us there. It's a daring move because it coincides with my, my own mind and the complexity uh, of my own mind. Possibly there's an echo of Milton. Oh, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. But I think what's really effective with this poem, you can see it if you just look at the verse on the page, is that it alternates longer pentameter lines, five stress lines, with shorter trimeter lines, that is three stress lines. And the three stress lines are also rhyming couplets. They beat and the voice beat more instant than the feet. It's brilliant that because feet and beat are words that we would apply to poetry, both of them beat being a stress, feet being the metrical foot of a line of verse. So it's very clever. Um, and I suspect he's gone to William Blake, who uses exactly the same rhyme in The Tiger. And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet. <laughs> I think Blake, Blake's there in, uh, in, T in Thompson's uh, ear. So what's the overall vision of this poem? Um, it's important when you're reading it to get a sense that the Hound of Heaven is not a hound in pursuit of death or destruction. It's not the usual image of a hound in pursuit of a fox or a hare. This is a hound in pursuit of love and loyalty, which the speaker of the poem has yet to realise. And this makes it all the more important as a poem of awakening faith and love. God in the form of the Hound of Heaven is described as a tremendous lover. Again, that's a... a, a Herbert occasionally does this, you know, addresses Christ as his lover. Ah, oh, my dear, in, in these very affectionate, uh, endearing terms, making a kind of spiritual love poetry. That's what, that's what Thompson does as well. How am I doing for time, John? Because I haven't got on the left cardio hand yet. Oh, perfect. Great. So, just very briefly on the English martyrs. 
if you want to flip back to the previous page. Um, and I, I wanted to mention this in particular because we have a, a holograph manuscript copy here at Ashore College. And uh, John's already plugged the book, but I'll, I'll do so again. I've, I've, I've talked about it a, a, a little bit. It's led me on now to edit the, the, the poems of Thompson because I realise we have here a version that has never been printed in its entirety before. Um, and what you've got here is part of the, uh, the opening 46 lines which were cut when it, um, it first appeared. Now, this is an impassioned ode. It's commemorating the English martyrs of the English Reformation. It was commissioned by the Dublin Review. That's where it uh, first appeared. And he wrote it um, the year before he died, 1907. It's one of his final pieces. Um, Wilfred Maynell, who was the editor, cut these opening lines because he suspected they were opium-induced. Um, I, I don't think they were. Um, and my, my reasoning is that this is a powerful apocalyptic vision of a breakdown. He uses the word anarchy, which of course Yeats in that famous poem, The Second Coming, things fall apart, the sender cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Thompson is saying this you know, before, before Yeats is. He uses the word anarchy, disorder. Why was that? You know, one of the great breakthroughs I had in research, this is the kind of thing you hope for. He'd responded to earthquakes in 1903, and, and he registers the fact that something is, is shaking the earth. It, it's, not, it's not induced by opium, it's induced by geology, if, if, if you like. And he, he sees this terrible change and links it to all that is wrong in England. He sees a kind of coming... Apocalypse. However, uh, it might be that Maynell did him a favour, technically and formally, because the way it opens, if you just look at the, um, at the beginning, uh, it takes us straight in to the red rain and the red dew uh, of blood sacrifice. The Tyburn tree, the cross, the sacrifice. Uh, th these powerful opening lines, I mean, they're very, very stirring, aren't they? Rain... Rain on Tyburn tree, red rain a falling, dew, dew on Tyburn tree, red dew on Tyburn tree, and the swart bird a calling. This ominous black bird, again, this is very common in medieval literature. Thence it roots so fast and free, yet it is a gaunt tree, black as bee, the swart birds alone that seek, with red bedabbled breast and beak, its lank black shadow falling. So, the black shadow of Tyburn spreads over blighted England at the beginning of a new century, beginning of the 20th century, and this ominous black bird with its red bedabbled breast and beak completes this powerful symbolic depiction. But at the heart of the poem, this is just a short section, is the procession of English martyrs, and at the centre of this is Thomas More, much beloved by uh, Thompson, to whom he refers as dear jester in the courts of God. And he's using jester in a, in a positive way. So, um, someone he praises for his holy ease and his irrepressible spirit. And it closes with an observation on freedom that takes us right back to the paradoxes of 17th century poetry. Freedom, spacious and unflawed, who was walled about 
with God. Lovely phrase that, isn't it? Walled about with God. In your imprisonment, you can find uh, freedom, uh, he tells us at the end of, of this poem. Well, let's move quickly to um, our second writer, who is um, Lafcadio Hearn. Um, why Lafcadio? Uh, he was born on the Greek island of Lafcadio. He was Irish. Uh, it's a very strange name, but his father was an army Irish surgeon. And they were on this Greek island, and he decided uh, Lafcadio uh, would be a, a good name. So he was brought up in Dublin. He was here at Ashore between 1863 and 1866. And it took us a while to find him in the college records, because he appears here as Paddy Hearn, not as Lafcadio. And Patrick was his middle name. But it, apparently he was embarrassed by this strange Greek name. But ironically, his best friend here at Ashore it was a man called Achilles Daunch, <laughs> so he needn't, he needn't have worried. Now, um, when he was 16, he suffered an eye accident uh, out on the fields here. Uh, some people thought it was cat, but in, in fact it appears to be a, a game called Giant Stride, uh, using a piece of knotted rope, and it appears that the knotted rope hit him in the, the eye. And he lost the sight um, of his left eye. His right eye was already defective and slightly protuberant. I don't know if you can see here. If you, if you get really close to this image, um, you can see that there's an um, opaqueness to the left eye and a slight swelling uh, to, to the right. Um, nearly always in photographs from this time onwards, he turned away from the camera. So what, what you get is a profile image. Um, so he didn't have great um, eyesight. He had surgery in Dublin. He went to several uh, ocular surgeons in, in London. But that was effectively the end of his time here at Ashore College. He, he did those three years, 63 to 66. He then left Ireland for the United States. He was only 19. And I think this next um, image is from his time in Cincinnati. He, he worked as a reporter for the Cincinnati Enquirer. One of the things I got really interested in, I, I love jazz music, and I, I wondered when jazz criticism, you know, the earliest criticism of um, African-American jazz began. He, he just crossed all the racial divides. He'd, he'd, he'd go to black music venues and he'd write jazz criticism. I think it must be the earliest jazz criticism that we've, we've got. Um, so he establishes himself as a reporter he moves on to New Orleans, New Orleans. Um, then he goes up to the West Indies. Um, and this interest in other races um, develops. Um, he publishes a book titled Two Years in the French West Indies. That's 1890. And he writes a novel uh, about uh, slavery and the insurrection against slavery. He then gets a, a commission from Harper's uh, Magazine in New York. And they want him to go out and do some more traveling. This is very um, common if you think of Robert Louis Stevenson, who's doing something similar, you know, going off to the, uh, the Pacific, writing about these places for magazines like, like Blackwood. It's a great market for, for this. So uh, Hearn gets pulled into that. But he goes to Japan and he stays there. Uh, he gets a job as a school teacher. Then he marries uh, Koitsumi Setsu and becomes uh, a Japanese subject. And there he is in his. Uh, Japanese uh, ceremonial costume. And we have photographs of him uh, with his family 
um, in Japan. He writes, um, there he is, um, but he, he writes some of the earliest uh, accounts by any Western writer of Japan in the late 19th century. If you think about it, Japan had been closed. I mean, there was very, very little uh, written by any uh, European writer at all. And in, in Japan, um, he's still very, very highly regarded for his insights, particularly in this book, uh, Glimpses of Unfamiliar Japan. Now, because I work on English literature, I got very, very interested to discover he became professor of English at the University of Tokyo. And one of my very good friends now occupies that position in Japan. So, and we, we, you know, we've got a link. We're thinking of setting up a Lafcadio Hearn International Society. The book I've got really interested in because of his um, fascination with the supernatural is a book titled Ghostly Japan which um, came out right at the end of the 19th century, 1899. And just very quickly to finish, um, I've got three extracts from uh, his work I thought we'd look at just very briefly, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish with this. The first, we think, comes from his time at Ashore College, and he has the fascination with the Gothic. One of the amazing things is that he's an exact contemporary of Bram Stoker, um, the author of Dracula. You know, they, they, they grew up in Dublin uh, pretty much the, uh, the same years. There's another Paul Murray, not Paul Murray of the Centre for Catholic Studies, but Dublin Paul Murray, who came to a conference we, we had last year, and he talked about uh, Bram Stoker, Lafcadio Hearn, and the fascination of the Gothic, and what is it in Irish culture in particular that prompts this interest in the Gothic. But obviously here, um, with the Pugin architecture, it must have been a, you know, an absolute um, delight for him. Meet me at twelve at the Gothic door, massive and quaint of the days of yore, when the spectral forms of the mighty dead glide by in the moonlight with silent dread. It's full of ghostly imaginings. You can see, you know, even as a, a teenager, he's, his head is full of... Um, of, of, of this, when the dead in the lonely vaults below rise up in grim array, thinking of James Joyce's great story, The Dead, of, of course. So a, a, a writer of um, uh, interest in the Gothic, the ghostly, the spectral. To go back to what I said earlier about nature and the, the beauties of, of nature and how this feeds into the writing, um, there's an extract here which looks back on his years at Ashore College where one of his um, teachers tells him off for pantheistic leanings, and he says, I remember lying on my back in the grass, gazing into the summer blue above me, and wishing I could melt into it. It's very romantic, isn't it? Is it perhaps Wordsworth is part of this. Um, a religious tutor was innocently responsible. He tried to explain to me, because of certain dreamy questions, what he termed the folly and the wickedness of pantheism, with the result that I immediately became a pantheist <laughs> at the tender age of 15. And the piece I wanted to uh, close on um, here is from a lecture he gave in Tokyo, uh, 1898, The Value of the Supernatural in Fiction. He's, a great, he's not so much of a poet. He wrote very little poetry, in fact. He, he's a great prose writer. He's a, he's a great critic. Um, and I wish Stefano had been here because Stefano organised a conference on ghosts 
in Durham Uni University, a few of us went, went along to that. And here he says in the lecture, let me tell you, uh, let me speak to you about this word ghostly. It's a much bigger word, perhaps, than some of you imagine. The Old English had no other word for spiritual or supernatural, which two terms, you know, and not English, but Latin. He says the old Anglo-Saxons uh, used the term ghostly. And he goes on to say, in the modern formula of the Catholic confession, which has remained almost unchanged for nearly 2,000 years, you will find that the priest is always called a ghostly father, which means that his business is to take care of the ghosts or souls of men, as a father does. And then he reminds us of the, the Holy Ghost at the end of the paragraph. But then this brilliant line, I mean, this, this shows you what, what a great critic he is. All great art has something ghostly in it. It touches something within us which relates to infinity. It's such a thought-provoking suggestion, that, isn't it? He goes on to say, the ghostly represents always some shadow of truth, and no amount of disbelief in what used to be called ghosts can ever diminish human interest in what relates to that truth. So just to finish, two writers deeply preoccupied with the supernatural, both writers having elements of style and theme that can be traced right back to their Ashore College education here. Uh, both writers who I think deserve to be better known uh, and both well worth revisiting uh, at this important anniversary conference. So thank you very much. Thanks.